And it's not just about longevity in Congress. It's about intention and it's about who you represent. And the reason I think, you know, I can only speak for me as a woman, there is just no amount of money that somebody could bring to me that would make me do the wrong thing. I don't care. (laughs) I mean, because it's, we got to do better for our kids and then their kids. This is Women Killing It. Each week, women who are killing it in their careers share their stories and advice for making it in today's working world. Your host is Sally Hubbard. Today's guest is Lillian Salerno. Lillian is currently running for Congress. She's running for Congressional District 32 in Texas, the seat held by Pete Sessions. Lillian is an entrepreneur, attorney, and an advocate for healthcare workers, nurses, and patients. She served as an appointee in the Obama administration, where she worked to help alleviate poverty and improve the economy for underserved communities in rural America. Congratulations, Lillian. You are killing it. (laughs) Thank you, Sally. Let's start by talking about your current congressional run. What made you decide to run for Congress? Well, thanks, Sally, for having me on. And I had spent my whole career sort of working for on behalf of working families and nurses and workers and uh, as a female small business owner. And when I was working in Washington after serving in the Obama administration and watching the healthcare fight this past summer, where they were trying to pass Trump care and throw 22 million people off the rolls of healthcare, I just said enough. And, you know, I'm from Texas and from Dallas and had a, my family here and said, you know what, I need to go back and run. This is a seat that's winnable. And I have the profile that could win in that district. Bunches of women had asked me to come back and run. And that was sort of the deciding factor to me was, you know, here we are having this such a mean spirited debate over people's lives. And the two women that did weigh in, both Republicans, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, they're the ones who put country over party. And that's the way a lot of women roll. And that's the way I roll. And I said, you know what? We need to have a discussion that is about people and populations that don't have a voice in Washington. And I've been up here speaking on behalf of those people most of my career. That means I should be a U.S. Congresswoman. Could you explain to us what your role was at the Obama administration? Sure. I was in charge of the policy for rural development. So the Department of Agriculture, one of the big federal agencies that's located on the National Mall, run by uh, Secretary Vilsack the entire time of the Obama administration. They have a lot to do with all kinds of people's lives. They run the Forest Service, they run the school lunch programs, they run commodity programs, and they also are in charge of making sure that that rural part of our country, which is about 50 million people and about over 70% of our land mass, that it's vibrant, that it creates economic opportunity, and that it's out there, you know, partly to grow our food, but also partly to create opportunities for people. And that part in the it's called the mission area. It's called rural development. And that's the uh, mission area that I worked for where we were responsible for making sure that there was clean water, broadband, economic opportunity, capital for small business, and of course, resources for uh, independent and small farmers. I've been really interested in this issue lately, you know, the whole urban rural divide, because obviously it's causing a lot of problems politically. 
and there's this huge you know, wealth gap. But the thing that I don't understand is given the state of technology these days, why is this divide still persisting so much in an era when your location doesn't actually matter in terms of your ability to start something online? Well, I think there's the piece on the online and access to broadband's one certain piece. And, you know, for places that have big rural communities, like not the place I'm running, by the way, I'm running in the middle of Dallas, Texas, but Texas has a lot of ruralness because we're a big state, as do a lot of the southern states. And then, of course, the Midwestern states also. But what we know for sure is that people in these areas, they have a lot of a value proposition based on the fact that they do want to, you know, build their communities in places that, you know, many people either don't or decide not to live in. And so they they need to have certain kind of resources so that they can live their lives. And it's not places where the big banks are going to go and put in small branches. It's not the place that people are going to go and build out broadband. It's not the place that the tax authorities are going to go and make sure their schools are as good as, as some of the schools in urban areas. And so it's the government does need to step in, and it has. The flip side of that is, you know, and what people you know, certainly with this last election is, you know, those folks that have been so left behind, how did they possibly vote for this real estate guy that has been doing business in a certain kind of way that wouldn't be acceptable, certainly in the parts of rural Texas that I know, he wouldn't be welcome at all, but yet they voted him in. And part of that, what I saw, both as a citizen coming from Texas and also as a government official that was giving money out in these areas from the Obama administration, is there's just this huge disconnect where people feel left behind and they blame each other and they blame people with different skin color. And the real folks that they need to be blaming is this corporate concentration piece, which is taking all this wealth out of these small communities. And I love my New York City, and I know you do, (laughs) but there's folks going, you know, with these big capital markets that are trading paper at the expense of people that are trying to grow their little families in rural Texas. And that's not okay. Now, I know you and I both share this passion for antitrust and share major concerns about how corporate consolidation is affecting democracy and equality And I've been struggling to try to make this stuff very tangible and understandable for the everyday person, especially when antitrust itself has been kind of this exclusive domain of lawyers and economists, right? Yep. Now, you experienced the effects of corporate consolidation yourself firsthand when you had your own business. Could you tell your story about that? Sure. My story is about that time back in our history in the early 90s where Every person that contracted HIV, it was a death sentence. And those of us that were part of that community, meaning anywhere in this country and anywhere in the world, quite frankly, where people were getting sick with HIV, there was no cocktail at that time or no prescription for being able to treat it over a lifetime. It was something where nurses, the medical and healthcare systems in this country were panicked. We had nurses and doctors that were scared to treat HIV patients. And what I was just happened to be working with uh, an engineer on another project that was sponsored by the National Institute of Health. And 
his best friend from grade school and then someone that I knew in my family, both were HIV positive, that we knew we were going to lose in the next two years, and we did, where we thought, you know, we're working on another project. I wonder if there's anything that we could do. And we literally called the National Institute of Health and asked, is there anything from an engineering side, me not being an engineer, being a business person and then a lawyer, but him being a very talented engineer. And they said, you know, we're really having trouble because the standard syringe is making it so when people are treating people with HIV, nurses are scared that if they get needles stuck, they can potentially get contract HIV. And it's making that the quality of care is going down. And we have people not even showing up on shifts. And then secondarily, uh, nobody likes to talk about the injection drug user, but at that time, and of course now there's populations that use drugs and they were reusing syringes and that's a problem and that's helping drive the disease. And so we came up with the first retractable syringe and patented it and it's called Vanish Point. And we worked alongside nurses from Parkland Hospital here in Dallas and we came up with a device that was the world standard and still is. And instead of being sort of welcomed and accepted to the uh, healthcare system, the folks that own the market for syringes, which is a company up in New Jersey, they did everything in their power and blocked us from selling our syringes. So instead of it being the standard of care, we were only able to sell in little systems that had competitive bidding systems. So we were able to sell in like public systems. So any any place that did a competitive bid, like for a you know manhole cover, <laughs> would do a competitive bid on syringes. So health departments and uh, county health departments, state health departments, uh, public prisons at that time were using our syringes. So we used to joke that the only folks that got the best technology in the country because our healthcare system is such a disincentive system and so broken. This was back in the 90s. I was complaining about healthcare back then and still am, that it doesn't work for real people. Where the only people that were able to use our syringes were nurses were protected when they were in prisons, which is a good thing. Certainly, they were protected. We were able to sell into Indian health systems because it had public bidding. And then county health systems, which was, you know, made a lot of poor people. So we were like, you know, at least our syringes being used by people who wouldn't normally get good technology. But because the system's so messed up, uh, university systems aren't able to access and nurses aren't able to access our syringes because they're contracts are made in this way that they only go with the folks that have the monopoly on the markets. So I, I learned it the hard way. I had a front row seat of watching what monopolies do. And I think after 20 years, other folks are finally thinking, you know what, this may be why this economy's so topsy-turvy. And I believe that historians will think this is the time in our history where we absolutely have to do a course correct or we're headed to a place that none of us want to raise our children in. And so the company that had these contracts with the major health systems basically didn't allow those health systems to purchase any product from anyone else. I mean, I'm assuming that their syringes were not state of the art and they probably weren't even their core products, right? Right. It's all about a bundled, uh, what they call a, like a compliant system where you have to buy off of certain contracts at 90%. Or, and it's also about when you go into healthcare, go, just go into a hospital room at any major hospital in this country and you see we should be a lot better. And we're not because we don't 
allow people to compete. I mean, there's a medical device and small pharmaceutical company graveyard out there. And that's why your healthcare costs are so high. And so when I used to sell my products to Brazil or Spain or Denmark, I'd compete in a competitive bid system and they would pay about a third of what U.S. hospital systems pay. And I made them from over here and shipped them there. It's so frustrating to hear these statistics about how much America spends on health care and with, you know, worse outcomes and spend so much more money per patient. And when it comes to pharmaceuticals, it's the U.S. health system that funds most of the R&D, most of the research and development of these pharmaceuticals, because we pay prices so much higher than any other country pays. Yep. Just unbelievable. And again, and it's, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, but I mean, one of the things that I'm just, if people will allow me to go and have a seat at the table at, in the U.S. Congress, I promise me and people like me, we can help because what you have to do is you have to get people to discuss transparency of costs. This idea that, you know, you as a mom, Sally, with your daughter, she just has a, a something she has to go to the doctor with, a, you know, let's just say a broken finger. You should know what that costs. You should know what that costs, whether you have insurance, whether you don't have insurance, this bait and switch craziness. And that is not because of doctors and nurses. That is not because of all the great healthcare professionals we have in this country. That is what we call the medicine middlemen. They have made it so that none of us know what these things cost, and therefore the costs spiral, and therefore we can't get control of it, and therefore we blame all the poor people or people of color that we say that they're not pulling their fair share, and therefore they're not entitled to health care. That's just crazy. Everyone's entitled to health care. We've got to get our health care costs down, and people like me, I really, really want that job. I really think I can help because I actually know what things cost. And a pharmaceutical rep or his lobbyist is not going to be able to come in and talk to me about pipeline and how much they have to charge because they've got pipeline. A lot of what they say is just total misinformation. And we just need to have people that call them at that at it. And the reason we don't have those representatives in Congress is because they're taking money from the same guys that we need to help get to the correct information, they can't get to there because they're also taking money from pharmaceutical lobbyists. I mean, I think that's really our number one problem in this country, that you can trace nearly every problem to this source of campaign finance and politicians being beholden to corporate interests. And uh, certainly having someone like you in there that has a uh, a spine and will stick to your beliefs would be a huge asset. I think we really just need to completely change the way campaign finance is done. But um, it's become more and more clear to me that the current Congress is really just representing the interests of their corporate, you know, overlords <laughs> more than the consumers. And and now you came from a really small town. I, I want to hear about your story because you're really a self-made woman. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't even know what that means anymore. Uh, now that I'm running for Congress, you know, you have to tell your story. And I tend to be one of those people that, you know, you get what you see. I'm not going to go and all of a sudden be somebody else. The reason I got into the race was I just, the idea of having a certain skill set that I was so blessed in a way because I 
was given an opportunity in a country where you were given opportunities because I didn't grow up with any resources. And then I have a skill set that maybe could help with the problem and then just sit on the sideline. I wasn't somebody that was going to go cash it in and work for the bad guys. So to not run to me seemed almost un-American. So for me, coming back to where I grew up and running was my give back. I mean, my family tells me, you already did five years with the Obama administration and not making very much money (laughs) working uh, 70 hours a week. Why are you thinking you're still giving back? But I really wasn't somebody that was going to just go and play golf or whatever. I said, you know, it'd be different if there were competent people working on the issues that are so important for this country. And I think there are some competent people in Congress, some, but we need waves of people that are there for the right reason. And the right reason in this history, we've got to look at corporate concentration. We've got to look at getting healthcare for all. We've got to look at the future for our children. And, you know, I have a kid in college. I have two adopted daughters. I know what it's like for women to have to juggle all that we have to do. And if we don't bring a wave of women into the United States Congress, we will not solve the problems that are facing us. And in a state like Texas, where I grew up, we have 38 people. That's our delegation. Three of those are women. And we haven't elected a new Congresswoman from Texas in over 20 years. Wow. Three out of 38. That is definitely dismal. And the problem we have, and this is, you know, Texas is a huge delegation. We have a big population, a big state. And we cause some of the huge problems this country has because of our delegation, which are mostly men that don't have the same worldview as a lot of women. And Texas women are mad and they're mad and they're tired of being told what to do. And don't even get me started on the whole reproductive rights and assaults on women healthcare piece, just on their daily lives, what they have to go through being run by these men, they've had it. And the feeling is palpable. And that's why I think we have a shot to win this seat. And that's why I'm running. That's awesome. And I had previously on this podcast, I had Zephyr Teachout as an interviewee, and she talked about how the low number of women in politics means that there are certain issues that are not even in the political discourse. And I've been thinking about that a lot. One thing she talked about was elder care. Yep. Elder care falls disproportionately on women's shoulders and it interferes with their ability to do their jobs, to make their living. It has huge economic consequences. And there's basically zero public policy about elder care. Yeah. One time when I was working on um, healthcare costs, I've been working on trying to get healthcare costs down now since for about 20 years. And we were actually successful in getting a hearing. This was in 2002 or three. I can't remember me and my team of, you know, sort of consumer advocates and people that care about nurses, just trying to see, you know, there's enough of us out there, enough of us small companies, enough of the consumer union type folks nurses unions where we think, you know, this is an important issue. This was, you know, way before Obamacare. And what I remember is walking through, going, trying to go to my hearing and where there was no one in the galley and then seeing where everybody was and it was on steroid use and baseball. And I love baseball, but just that watching where people put their attention and the cameras were instead of talking about the sixth of our economy, which is healthcare and how to get costs down and transparency, 
all the TV cameras and all the congressional members, which are, you know, 80% men, are all talking about steroid use in baseball. And that was just, I just remember that so clearly. That's really stark. I mean, as much as steroid use in baseball is an unfortunate thing in terms of level of priorities for someone running the government, I would think that would be uh, very, very, very far below <laughs> reducing healthcare costs if you're really focusing on governance. And I think that's where we are in this, with this administration. You know, I talk about the Trump distraction. I mean, part of what we are facing and people feel so depressed, quite frankly, and out of control that we now have an administration and an unrecognizable GOP that makes it so people don't feel safe because it's so whatever the latest distraction is we're talking about rather than clear leadership about where this country's moving. And we need folks that are looking 20 years from now. And that's what we don't have. We have people that are, because they're so corrupted, and they may not have been corrupted when they got to Congress, but they're there now. And it's not just about longevity in Congress. It's about intention, and it's about who you represent. And the reason I think, you know, I can only speak for me as a woman, there is just no amount of money that somebody could bring to me that would make me do the wrong thing. I don't care. I mean, because it's, we got to do better for our kids and then their kids. And this idea that my kids and your kids don't have the same opportunity, certainly for me growing up without any resources, I was, you know, I'm a first generation college graduate, you know, and now I'm running for U.S. Congress. I'm humbled. And I'm also sad because I don't know if a kid growing up in my same circumstance in Dallas, Texas, can get to where I am based on where we are as a society. And that's not okay. There certainly seems to be a real decline in upward mobility, or it's just much harder these days than it was. Like even my parents' generation, my parents were boomers. Most people or a good percentage of people in the boomer generation really did better than their parents did, right? They kind of really rose up. And I saw some statistic that said, you know, more, the majority of people in my generation are actually doing worse than their parents did. Yep. Which I showed to my parents to be like, see, it's not just me. (laughs) 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 At least financially, at least financially. They're proud of a lot of the things I'm doing, but in terms of finances. So there's certainly this very troubling trend and as, as soon as people feel that they do not have the possibility of the American dream, that's where we're going to see all this massive political discontent that we've already been seeing, right? Yes. So it's very problematic for political harmony and democracy, you know, that, that people believe that they have the equal opportunity. And I think we can do so much better. And, you know, it's just troubling that people think for one minute that it's okay not to have diversity, diversity with women, diversity, people of color at the table on decision-making. And, you know, some people are, you know, telling me, you know, just run on that issue. Just, you know, you've been somebody who's always been working with a diverse population in my whole lifetime. And people that know you know that about you. And, you know, I'm not trying to look angelic. It's not about that. I'm actually somebody who knows that the decisions are better when you do that. 
you know, it's not a, we need to have it for looks. It's because when you have women around the table, and I've seen this in business, and I've seen it in government, and I've seen it in politics, and I've seen it at the PTA, and I've seen it in uh, at church. When you have women and, and people of color at the table, you just get better decisions, period. Yeah, that's been a constant theme on this podcast, talking to people, and particularly in, in business, since this, I focus mostly on career stuff, is just kind of like, it's actually against financial self-interest to continue things the way things are now. You know, there's investment opportunities that are being missed. There's um, just talent that's being missed and, you know, not having everybody's ideas at the table. It's, it's even terrible for the economy. Right. I mean, all the, all the resources that are not being leveraged, you know, and then all the businesses that are not being started, it's actually, it's not just, this is the right thing to do. And this is the, you know, it's not a charitable thing to do. It's actually, you get better results. Right. And I, I truly, you just brought up, um, business startups. And I, I worry, I mean, you know, I'm that boring of a person, I guess, but when I, <laughs> I worry about my kids, I worry about my family, I worry about making sure that I do everything I can, that we have an opportunity to win this seat. And I also worry about startups. I worry about startups a, a lot because I think something happened with this economy. And I blame that on corporate concentration and access to capital because of corporate concentration, that this generation they're just not thinking that it's okay to go start a company because they don't see it as a heroic slash, I don't know, they just, they're not going and starting enough little companies. And you hear about startups and, and unfortunately the media, uh, no offense to New York or uh, San Francisco, but they, they cover, you know, the sort of sexy startups of Silicon Valley and, and finance, I guess. But between the coasts, there's a ton of country. And one of those states is Texas. And we just have, you know, we have great economy in Dallas, but we don't have enough startups. And why is that? And I think part of the problem is because of the corporate consolidation, there's a whole bunch of businesses that are not even really on the table anymore. Right. Right. Like maybe you would start a little shop. I mean, that was one of the most popular businesses to start is, you know, a selling something. And these days you can't sell something because you will be squashed by Amazon or Walmart. Right. I mean, so there's just like a whole bunch of businesses that people are even, I mean, there's new opportunities, right. If you can transition to the new economy, but even that, you know, we see, uh, we've talked about, we were both at a conference where this was discussed, where Facebook has an app that can identify any new startups that are getting traction and they can either buy them or copy them very early stage. So it's like this possibility of always being squashed by some huge giant that I think is a real disincentive to starting your own business. And I think the personality of the, what I call generation after the, the boomers is, I think they have the temperament to be really good business owners. I really do. And part of being a good business owner, I mean, the whole time when I was running my company with my partners, I mean, we weren't every day waking up and saying, oh, we can't wait to get our next offer for so-and-so. We got a lot of offers to sell. But, you know, it's not – a lot of entrepreneurs, the reason you go into it, it's a mission. You know, you don't wake up and think – it's like your own child in a way, you know, you're growing your child and you're trying to make sure it, you know, you're nurturing it and you're creating it so it can go out in the world and you send it in for us. We wanted to make it so it was a business for the next generation in our own family. But 
this idea that starting something is to sell it. I think somehow as a society that we, we were on that trend, I don't think that's going to be the trend. And I think the economy will be a lot better for it because we need these mid-sized companies. We need, we, this society doesn't work with two or three players in every field. Well, this is what we have today. And is the society working for the average person out there? I don't think so. I'm curious when you bring up these issues of concentrated power and consolidation with voters, do people respond to that? Because this is something that, as I said before, I'm trying to get more people to understand, you know, antitrust law and monopolies. And, you know, it's just been something that hasn't been part of the political discourse for so long. Are people responding to that? You know, they respond to it when they think about it in their own family, but it's not, you know, the minute you use the word monopoly or antitrust, not they totally understand it probably better than I do. They just, they sort of have to uh, position it in their own minds what that what that meant. So, you know, for example, someone said, so Lillian, you, you, when you're saying that you're meaning the fact that I can only have two cable providers. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's what I mean. Right, right. I <laughs> you know, get so it. They, it takes like, there's a transition point and I'm sure there's better messengers than I mean, although I need to get really good because I'm running for Congress, but, <laughs> but uh, they sense it, but putting it in their own terms, just like everything, you know, what does that mean? For me, I live, you know, these 25 years, you know, started a company that saw it from the first row. We had to sue in order to get into markets. I saw what it's like being the person in courtrooms and in deposition rooms, being asked by a bunch of male lawyers, you know, how is it this, you guys invented this? Are you sure, you know, questioning our beliefs, questioning, you know, just despicable behavior, quite frankly, against me as a female, because I was involved with a product that revolutionized an industry that they didn't think we deserved. So I live that. So I'm very vocal about it in the sense and feel very passionately about it. Someone else, you know, working people, they're getting hurt too. And they may not be able to call it what I'm calling it, but it is corporate consolidation. Why they, when they go and get their cell phone bill that it has, you know, that there's only two or three competitors. Why when they go and uh, get their cable provider that they can only pick between two or why when they now go to their Whole Foods, you know, it's now owned by Amazon. I mean, all of it's affecting them. They just not may not be calling it the same thing that I'm calling it. But I think we're all going to be in the same place in a very short time. Out of necessity, it seems like we're all going to get there. You know, there's a lot of resistance, certainly among the antitrust community, because they kind of like having it be this realm of their expertise and it's become this technocratic abstract thing. And I think it's out of necessity going to become much more and more, and it is becoming more and more of a political issue that every person needs to start to understand. So I'll, I'll try to work on being a messenger for that as well. It's, it's hard to put it in terms that don't just sound wonky and <laughs> um, alienating. And I think, you know, part of our problem is, you know, the courts, the courts that have been, you know, the courts haven't understood it. And so people that their cases should have been upheld have not, you know, I think, when you have the kind of conference that I met you at, um, where Elizabeth Warren's talking about it and, you know, uh, Congressman Ellison's talking about it and others, you know, it'll start getting some traction. But believe me, there's a lot of people in this country that do not want this talked about because this is where they've made all their money and their control. 
And so it's not going to be, we're not going to just talk about it and people are going to just say, oh yeah, that's right. (laughs) We're going to have a complete fight on our hands because this is the soul of the economy. And for Democrats, this is a big deal. You can't be talking about this and then go take all your money from pharmaceutical lobbyists. So it's a big deal. It is a big deal. And I agree, it's going to be a fight because no one ever gives up power willingly, right? Nope. <laughs> it has to be taken. <laughs> and so that that's where, you know, I, from Dallas, Texas, where there's amazing people and we have amazing industries here, I truly believe that they're willing to play a role in making sure they help take this country back. And that's why I'm so you know, privileged and honored to to try to represent them because I think Texans for too long have been talked about like they're just a bunch of good old boys and they just get along. And so we have a congressman like uh, Pete Sessions from this great place called Dallas, Texas, that really doesn't represent the people of Dallas, Texas. He represents a few lobbyists and, and uh, a few you know, fossil fuel firms and things like that. But that's not what Dallas is about. And I think people, when you look at the diversity in Dallas, when you look at the young people that want to turn this into a walkable city, and when you look at the people that care about climate change and care about clean energy and care about where their kids go to school and that it's a diverse community, I don't think they're going to put up with it anymore. So that's why I'm excited and uh, do everything I can to try to represent them if we can win this primary. And, uh, well, there's one question that I ask everyone that I have on this show, and I know you had a very successful career as an entrepreneur several times over. What is something that you know now that you wish you would have known when you were starting out uh, as a young woman in your career? Uh, You know, because I'm running for office, I look at everything through that prism right now. (laughs) So this, Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you how I feel now. And then I think about if I wasn't running for office, probably what I'd say. What I say when I'm running for office is because I have to go out and raise so much money and I'm taking money from any of the sort of usual suspects. I wish I would have kept a better Rolodex of all the people that I could call, but that's just, I'm just kidding. Uh, but really the, the true advice that I would give anybody and that I learned is that it's all about friends in the marketplace. It's not doing things, you know, that you do the, do by your gut and this idea that, you know, you can take advantage of an employee take advantage of a contract that maybe the other guy didn't uh, read carefully or take advantage of a mistake that favors you in a way you need friends in the marketplace. And how many times people have been, when I've made mistakes, have said, you know what, I understand and let's just keep moving. And I've done that in my career. And that's what being a good business person and a good citizen is. It's not, you know, it's not like the movies where, you know, you slam the door and, ah, I got them. There is no, I got them. There's friends in the marketplace. That's all you got. It's amazing to me how some people manage to make it through the whole careers having the opposite approach. (laughs) (laughs) I won't, I won't mention who I'm thinking of right now. Um. (laughs) But this idea that somebody's out there saying, oh, that person, you know, did this to me and that's how I got my fortune. Who even wants a fortune if you got it like that? For real? Like, you know, right. this idea that right. you can live with yourself by taking advantage of a worker or a contractor or, you know, the person that cut your grass, you know, this is, it's about respect and attitude. I mean, I've been, I mean, I do have to say, going back to my campaign, what an 
awe moment for me that the kind of people that I would never even thought could, you know, they'd never donated to a political campaign. Darn even Democrats. I'm in Texas, right? <laughs> that I did business with as a lawyer, as a small business person that wrote me checks. And I, you know, and I'm just honored and it's overwhelming for me sometimes that, you know, but I did write by them and I do write by them again. Well, I'm very inspired. For our listeners to support you and to follow what you're doing, where should they find you on the web? Um, Salerno for Congress. So Salerno, like uh, the city or the cookie, depending what part of the world you're from, <laughs> S-A-L-E-R-N-O for Congress. And I'm down in Texas. And, you know, it, it does actually take a lot more of lots of people jumping in and helping me than I had thought when I started. <laughs> so thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk to your listeners who I know are a lot of uh, awesome women and others and the people that support women. So thanks for giving me this opportunity. Well, thanks for coming. And as Lillian said, she's not taking money from the corporate donors or she needs support from regular people. So check her out and keep posted. We'll be sharing some of her fundraisers that are coming up. And Lillian, thanks so much for being here. It was, you're always inspiring to talk to, and I wish you the utmost success with your run. Thank you, Sally. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to our podcast, rate and review us on iTunes, and most importantly, tell a friend about us. Thanks for joining us.